Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... So we're nearly 200 million in revenue, uh, just under 1,000 employees. About 25 countries we operated in, but we had projects in about 80 to 100 countries. So we operated virtually in every country that was doing any projects of size at the time. We had wonderful ones like Antarctica, Africa, I mean, all over the place. What entrepreneur Lee Jasper learned as a McKinsey's consultant, he describes it as doing an on-the-job MBA, he applied to his and friend Rob Philpott's startup idea. But the missing ingredient was risk. He wanted to take a risk in his business life. So Lee Jasper and Philpott believed they could better streamline massive building projects with their online process management platform, Aconex thereby cutting costs and cutting out miscommunications among players. In less than two decades, the pair built Aconex into a world-class company, servicing clients in 25 countries with projects in some 80 countries, all from their Melbourne base. In short, they built Aconex into a successful juggernaut that then needed more capital to continue its growth. But when they decided to go public via an initial public offering, an IPO, listing on the Australian Securities Exchange in 2014, they had no true idea of the challenging and often uncontrollable wild ride they were about to embark on as a publicly traded company. The lessons from those trenches, as well as what exactly drove the decision to sell out completely to US giant Oracle? And how might he now be able to help others facing the same hurdles? Well, take a listen to part two of my chat with Lee Jasper. Lee Jasper, you had an IPO in 2014 listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, ASX. Did you like being a public company? (laughs) Uh, Some bits are good. um, Some bits aren't so good. (laughs) I'd just say don't go too early. There's just no point. Why is that? There is an overhead of being public. So just firstly, there's the cost of being public. Yeah. So you have compliance requirements. You've got to speak to investors. And it takes time as well. So yeah. you're going to spend time speaking to investors and you're spending on the business. Uh, I think also you need to be at a certain scale to have, well, first of all, to afford the people that can help you run a public company. But uh, I think also just taking the risk out of the business. And we found this, uh, you know, if you're going well, the market loves you. But if you have a hiccup, often the market can turn very quickly and the market can be quite momentum-based. So it's just difficult, I think, sometimes if you're too small to, to be able to, uh, to manage that. And I think... Mm. I think the market is different to when when we listed, there weren't a lot of technology stocks listed in Australia. Um, There were very few, so we had to do some education in the market. That took a lot of time. Mm. Things are a bit different again these days. It's matured over the last five or so years. Markets, you know, can be brutal and tough as well. And I mean, your share price moved around a lot. Other issues arose with founders, you know, selling some shares occasionally, given a hard time about that. The short sellers had a go. And look, I could talk at length about that. But the, I mean, look, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with short selling, firstly, but the way that was handled in the market when we have to disclose everything as a public company, but a short seller can attack a stock and uh, and put whatever they like into the market. So it's it's sort of not quite right. You mean but, they um, tell fibs? 
Oh, well, I don't have to verify. So there were certain things that were levelled against us at the time. The people that did the reports on Aconex didn't speak to management. So they, they took a view on things without clarifying that, um, conveniently not clarifying it. Mm. Um, and there was just some, some blatant mistruths in what was uh, what were put into the, the report. And whether they knew they were wrong or not, I don't know, but they certainly didn't try and correct um, views they had of the, of the business. Now, that was fine. We worked through that. But that's one of the things about being public. You do have those those things that yeah, can be difficult. And I think if you're too small, that's as harder to navigate. Whatever size you are, waiting a year is probably going to be a good thing. Waiting two or three might even be better. So even if you're a certain size and you may be able to go public, unless you really have to, why would you? For us, it was there's some good reasons for the time. It gave me obviously having liquidity for shareholders. Shareholders could buy or sell. They could you know, increase their positions mm. or reduce their positions. So you have that flexibility and that liquidity. Uh, and it's also good for raising money. So we completed a few acquisitions uh, while we're public. And once you've got the backing of investors, it's a very efficient way of raising capital. So there's a lot of good things about being public. Balance that up against the the costs in both time and money, and and probably a bit of stress too. Having a share price isn't always a great thing. You don't want to be watching it go up and down from yeah. one day to the next. It's not not always helpful. On the positive side, as you mentioned, there are some positives that uh, that listing obviously helped you grow again and have another spurt, didn't it? That's right. So we obviously raised capital through the IPO. So. That- Obviously helped us drive our organic growth, but we also, uh, as I said, completed, completed a few tra- um, acquisitions, and so being able to raise money from the market uh, very quickly uh, was good. We bought a competitor in Germany, uh, and uh, now presence across Europe, we were able to fund that that transaction in a day. I mean, that's the mm. the great thing about being a public company mm. when you've got that support. I think one thing I'd say this to founders too, it is quite hard as a founder once you're listed to sell shares uh, as yeah. a CEO or as a director. So the market will tend to read something into that. Oh, read a lot into it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, oh, he's bailing or she's bailing. Yeah, that's right. And, and the problem is as a founder, is what I say to founders, you, you, you don't get, everybody else gets liquidity, but you don't really get liquidity as a founder, uh, as the CEO. So people need to be aware of that and not expecting that going to an IPO means that they'll take, take money out. It's yeah. uh, actually quite difficult to do that yeah. as, a, as an insider. What were your markers of success with Aconex as a public company? I mean, after all, you started with two employees, you and Rob as founders. You ended up with how many employees in how many countries and what sort of revenue were you doing as a public company? Yes, we're nearly 200 million in revenue, uh, just under 1,000 employees. About 25 countries we operated in, but we had projects in about 80 to 100 countries. So we operated virtually in every country that was doing any projects of size at the time. Amazing. We had wonderful ones like Antarctica, uh, the Caribbean, and we had projects, um, you know, I mean, Laos, I mean, you name it, we had projects in uh, in Africa, I mean, all over the place. Well, that's pretty extraordinary in, what, 18 years, 17, 18 years. The most fun was being able to you'd hop on a plane somewhere and I'd fly to Hong Kong and we are working on Hong Kong Airport and we'd go out and we'd go to Macau and we're working on projects there or we'd hop on a train somewhere in Dubai, say, and we've worked on that Dubai light rail. So these physical assets that we were building all over the world, we got to see that and um, I got a bit of a buzz out of that seeing the, the types of projects we were being used on. Lee, I think you were CEO of the public company when the giant US company Oracle bid to take you over in late 2017, offering a massive premium on the share price. Why sell out to Oracle? I think in the end it was for $1.6 billion. Yes, I mean, we 
uh, I've said this publicly, we weren't looking to sell it. We were quite happy, uh, Rob and myself, doing what we were doing, uh, building up the business. But we had we were public, we had shareholders, and uh, Oracle put in a price that we felt was in the interest of all shareholders to accept. So we decided to sell it. It was a, well, probably one of the hardest decisions I've ever made, uh, and it was quite emotional. You know, a lot of our shareholders, while they're happy with the result financially, they're quite emotional about it because this is a company that some of them invested back in 2000 and been on that, that journey all the way with us. Wow. We thought there was also quite a good fit with our product, with the Oracle product set, meaning that the product would have a life uh, beyond that. Um, we certainly weren't inclined to sell to somebody who was going to shut down the product. No, meaning they were trying to build up their cloud services. Were they in competition with Amazon and others? Well, they had no, more into our sector. So they had an example of one of their tools is a, a product called Primavera, which is around scheduling for construction projects. Oracle had a suite of, of construction-related products uh, and our product complemented that suite of products that they had in construction. Uh, so it was a nice fit from a product point of view uh, and the product still being, you know, Oracle's driving the product you know, quite aggressively around the world. So Aconix is doing, doing well as a product within that Oracle uh, product suite. So, um, so I think it was, it was good from that point of view. Uh, and... But, you know, it's, uh, I wasn't ready to retire, but, you know, obviously I'm doing other things now, but it's, uh, it was the end of the ACX journey for me. But you know, the product will go on and interesting, a lot of the people that were on the ACX journey with us have now gone on to do other things, other startups uh, around Australia, around the world. They're you know, in leadership roles in technology companies. So I think the team that was there at Aconnect has all gone on to do some pretty interesting things. Yeah. So you stayed on for a while under Oracle's ownership, but you're now out of Aconnect completely, aren't you, as of what, August 2019? That's right. August 2019, I, I left and uh, yeah, doing uh, investing in businesses, helping startups across a range of sectors, but particularly construction tech. I think there's still a lot of opportunity in the sector. Uh, so helping those businesses um, by both investing, but also helping, you know, by being on their boards and, you know, maybe giving them a little bit of the, uh, the, the what not to do and learning from our mistakes uh, so they can, uh, they can grow faster. Yeah. So, I mean, you made a pretty tidy sum out of Aconex and, and then Oracle's ownership. How did you decide what you wanted to do next? Was there going to be another one startup in you or do you call yourself a venture capitalist now or a private equity backer? <laughs> I mean, a little bit, I, I still haven't quite worked out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> so I still haven't quite uh, you know, said this is my path forever, but uh, certainly never say never to building another business, uh, but also in the meantime, very happy to work with businesses that I think have great potential, uh, particularly Australian businesses, to help them grow internationally. And I'm investing alongside that, so where I can invest and help the business grow through my time, that's a, obviously a good alignment of the outcomes. I think the other thing was trying to help, as I said before, the sector, so things like Launch Vic, mm. um, helping to, to drive the sector more. I think aside from what I invest in, there's also just a, a huge amount of value that I mean, Australia needs to build these businesses. We're, we're a great place to live. We've been a great economy over many years, but a weak point for Australia is just our depth of the technology sector. Mm. And we see how much we spend on, whether it's Apple products or on Facebook or Google mm. or you know, Amazon, the amount of money that those big US tech giants pull out of Australia. Is, there's nothing wrong with that. We should be building some of those winners ourselves. Exactly. And so helping to do that and then also investing. So we're investing myself but also um, set up a fund to invest in uh, secondary opportunities within companies. So most companies 
as they go through a journey, will have certain, as they get bigger, will have certain shareholders that might want to sell for some reason. So we're providing that secondary liquidity into the market uh, through second quarter ventures, purely for tech, uh, but for tech companies that where a founder might want to sell down a little bit, we mentioned that problem, but it's very hard to sell when you're a public company. So allowing founders to take a little bit off the table pre-being public, also for early staff and for early investors. So providing that liquidity. And our view is, again, that helps the sector. If you can provide liquidity, secondary liquidity, it means those, say, investors or early staff members can take that money and uh, potentially reinvest it back into early stage again. So it's about increasing that velocity of capital yeah. moving through the, through the market. Lee, what makes a good entrepreneur or a good idea worth backing? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I guess if uh, if we all knew it, it'd be easy. Uh, I think it's um look a lot of clearly good people. I think have good you've got to have good founders that are smart, resilient, can can really put everything into an idea. I'll look for businesses that are scalable. So having a scalable model where as you get bigger, you should be able to produce more profit. Um, so that those businesses scale over time. I also really like network-based businesses, a bit like Aconex, where you build a network and that network will reinforce over time. I think you get outsized returns. Meaning more users. Yeah, more users drive profitability. Yeah, that's right. So you become more profitable because you've got more users. You can also get to some degree winner-takes-all effect. Um, a good example of you know, companies like Facebook, Google, partly network as well, certainly on the advertising side. So you get mm. these great businesses often have pretty strong network effects. So look for those sort of businesses. But a lot of it, if you've got good founders, a good business model, scalable business model. And the other thing is the founders that can build teams. You know, I think one of the problems I see this in some states is that they get to a point where the founder isn't scaling, by actually doing less and delegating. So a founder, you can only do so much yourself. By the way, I'm not saying that Rob or I did this as well as we could have. I think we stayed, as any founder, it's very hard to let go. But good founders, I think, are able to bring teams around them and really step out of some of those roles to allow the business to expand and grow fast. I mean, perfect example of that is if your founder is always doing all your selling, you're not going to build a big business because it all goes through the founder. And in the early days, I did a lot of our, all of our early deals, but it got to a point where we had a 200 strong sales team. They're doing the sales. I can't do I can help yeah. out a bit, but I can't. I can't possibly scale a business if I have to sell everything. So this sense of letting go and allowing the team to scale around the business is, uh, I think, one of the key things I look for in entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs that can learn and grow and scale a team, that's critical. So amongst all these sort of investment criteria, I guess, and, and why you would back someone or an idea, where does culture sit in your book and where does customer sit? Yeah, so you've got to have a strong sense of customer. I think to me that's almost a given. You know, some degree you see that in the way that the a business grows. If it's not you know, generating revenue, it's not getting that product market fit, not looking after its customer. I think in terms of culture, again, that comes from I think founders who are able to see the importance of that. And so I look for businesses that have put that work into it. And what, what I mean by put the work into it is be purposeful about culture. So it's not just that the culture's evolved on ad hoc basis, but the founders are thinking about how they uh, nurture that culture, what makes them unique. And there's nothing worse than seeing a value statement that could be any businesses. Um, you need to find what's unique about your business and the group of people that you have and talk to that so it's something that really motivates people. I think culture is critical. I think, but I think you know, Australian, most Australian startups in general, and not always, but in general have pretty good cultures. I think Australia, again, has many strengths and one of them is building kind of flat, good operating structures, effective operating structures where you know, people can work well together across teams and there's a, a certain lack of hierarchy in Australian businesses, which uh, I think lends itself well to, to growing companies quickly and, uh, and startups. 
This is the uh, perhaps the million dollar question. What are the next strong waves of innovation or development in tech or the digital area? Where are they coming from? What should we be looking for? Yeah, I think I think there's still uh, it's clearly a long way to run. And what I mean by that is that I think we're in the early days of really. I mean, even the internet. You could argue that we're still in the early days of the internet. This sense of linking everybody mm. up on common platforms. I think to some degree the easy stuff's been done. I remember like a, a social network is great, yeah. but you know, the, how does it really drive help society? I don't know. I mean, you can argue whether it's positive or negative, but well, I think it really drives efficiency and real returns when you get into industry and deeply into industry. And we do that to some degree with what we could with the internet you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But you marry that up with mobile, with machine learning. The technology starts to a lot of things that had to be done you know, quite manually and, and often with brain power. Not that it was just manual, but if we can accelerate, essentially enable greater potential out of people um, so people aren't doing the mundane things that computers should be doing, whether that's through manual things are being replaced by robotics, we could also be able to thinking the grunt work of thinking like running a spreadsheet or something like that where you yeah, it's probably better for machines to do that. Let people do the creative stuff. Like what? What sort of creative stuff? To me, it's the um, so if I use construction as an example, it's the people who are designing, thinking about what the building looks like, rather than having to do the document. So, I can give you a specific example. We automated the document management that used to be done manually. People would have spreadsheets, and they, they wasn't they weren't using technology at all to run document control, but. Why run a spreadsheet as a person when the computer can do it for you? So the sense that we replaced the boring kind of grunt work mm. and freed people up to solve problems on projects, to design better buildings, to use their brain to create a better asset rather than having to worry about the, the very nitty-gritty of running a project or controlling information on a project. So that's just an example in our industry. But you know, across all industries, there's, there's examples of that. So automating processes using learning that people can't see. So machine learning to look at patterns over time, um, that's often quite hard for humans to do, but allow the human brain to do what it does best, which is be creative, yeah. think up new stuff, dream, you know, put things together in interesting ways. So I think we're just starting. Like, in terms of specific areas, I mean, anything with process automation, uh, like anything machine learning, AI-related, particularly now around Internet of Things, so you, where you've got equipment and machinery that's producing data uh, and using that data to, to be more efficient. There's loads of opportunities. I think the, the interesting thing is it's always hard to know. It's, it's easier in hindsight, but there's no doubt that you know, a lot of the things that we talk about is having impact. Possibly don't have impact quite as quickly as we anticipate, but over the medium to long term, over sort of 10 to 20 years, have far greater impact than what we could ever imagine. Mm. I think that's what's always exciting in technology. Yeah. Just with another of your hats on, you're also on the board of the Burnett Institute in Melbourne. Mm. That institute would have been very involved in the COVID response. What do you think we want to be able to say after we get out of this pandemic about what the Australian community did, what we learnt through this period, where we should be on the other side of it? Uh, if I look at it from a, especially from a Burnett perspective, clearly there's a, an appreciation of the science, which I think was great. Mm. And I think the Australian uh, community showed that it could pull together when it had to. We responded arguably better than any country in the world. Uh, so that's you know, a, a real feather in Australia's cap. I think we should celebrate that. Uh, I think what will be critical, though, is how we come out of it. I think it's whether we can use use as an opportunity to change some of the things we need to change. Uh, and again, I'm more from a business perspective, but things like, as I mentioned before, when my launch we've had on using as an opportunity to drive uh, Australian technology startups forward um, to create jobs much faster. I think going back to creating the jobs of 10 years ago 
isn't really setting us up for the future. The more we can create those jobs of the future, so technology jobs, uh, jobs in research, jobs in science, mm. uh, those jobs are well, firstly, they're a lot more interesting in my view, but I think they, they and they clearly pay better, uh, but they also have this multiplier effect on job. And any startup, any entrepreneur out there who builds a startup is going to employ, even if they're not successful, um, they employ dozens of people. And so the sector is ramping very quickly or can ramp very quickly and generate a lot of jobs. And so I'd like to see us doing more around that. So really retooling us as a, not just a lucky country, I think we're, we're lucky. I think we're smart to some degree, but you know, it's really the, the more we can use our smarts to drive better, faster growing technology businesses that we can take global, I think that benefits everybody, benefits the country massively. just got a couple of questions to ask you, which just, you know, a quick answer, if you like, can be one phrase. I'm asking a lot of my guests these questions. What are you obsessed about at the moment? <laughs> obsessed? Well, that's a good, good question. I, I'm playing a little bit more golf than I used to. I don't know. I'm quite obsessed, but it's, uh, it's good to be able to have a little bit more time to do that. But honestly, it's still the same. I'm really obsessed with the same stuff I did over many years, which is looking at how technology impacts markets and, and industries and trying to nut through what might be the next innovations, trying to help teams grow again. So the companies I've invested in helping those uh, those founders, those management teams develop their business. And I guess ultimately that's problem solving, which still keeps me going day in, day out. What's the toughest thing you faced in your business journey? There's a few. Very quickly, um, I think selling, as I mentioned before, having to sell for the first time, that was tough. We went through a court case. That was tough. When you're anything legal, is always tough. Uh, so it takes your, your mind off the business. That was hard. Probably the other thing was just selling Aconex. We didn't want to sell it, but it was the right thing to do for shareholders. But that was quite tough emotionally. Uh, I think, you know, sort of in a sense, uh, it's your baby. It's your baby, all right. Yeah, that baby's grown up and left home. And yeah, so that's been interesting. I mean, it's a good, not a bad thing. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's quite tough emotionally as you go through those changes. What's the biggest thing you've learned along your journey? The biggest lesson, I guess. Mm, I think, it, I mean, it's easy to say, but I think it ultimately comes down to people. Um, you can have the best business in the world, but if you're not working alongside people you want to work with, um, it's a lot of fun. And I think we had the great privilege at Aconex of being able to create the team we wanted to work with. Um, so Rob and I were quite personal about who we wanted to work with. Um, that sometimes meant people didn't fit, but it's you know, that opportunity to really you know, choose who you work with. I think that's fantastic. That's a great thing about being in a startup and building your own business, actually. You get to choose that. Yes, and getting great people, I think, is ultimately what it's all about. What would you say, Lee, to other would-be entrepreneurs who want to back their own idea? Just do it. I mean, it's this... It's never going to be easier than now. That's not to say it's easy. Um, I, you know, it is very hard to, to build a business, but the best time is now. And I think uh, you know, I'd say to anybody take the plunge you've got to have that resilience to be able to do it but you know you've got to if you think you've got a great idea at least give it 120 percent and see what happens look i don't know how you decide when to give up on something i'm not saying there's a perfect answer there because you know clearly some things don't work and you don't want to spend your life on something that doesn't work but i always say take the plunge you know, you're on the die wondering lee jasper thank you so much for joining me on build it they'll come it's been great to speak to you Thanks, Alan. Great to speak to you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. 
Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.